0: Today, uh, we're going to be looking at Revelations 2, 1 through 7. When people come to the book of Revelation in the Bible, uh, they're ready to get to kind of the cool stuff, the weird stuff a little bit. But because of that, the first two chapters tend to be either uh, treated differently than the rest of the book by students and by Preachers, sometimes they're even ignored altogether Or they're made more prophetic In a predictive sense Than what they really are Yet in fact The fact remains that this book is Not called the seven letters to the churches And the book of Revelation It's called the Revelation to John Uh, So these letters function within the book and not apart from it. And that's important for our understanding of Revelation as a whole because it tends to be so exclusively rooted in the future that we miss the entire purpose of the book itself. When John begins, he doesn't say to the readers of, uh, of the book, you know, you'll be blessed once you figure out how to decode it. He doesn't say that. He says, they will be blessed if they keep it. Obey what it says. And then Jesus ends the book um, by saying the exact same thing in the last chapter. So our appreciation for the significance of the book itself... tends to be inverted, tends to be upside down. Um, we emphasize chapters uh, four forward, but the book, by its own testimony, emphasizes chapters two and three. The book is a call to the church to repent and to prepare for the persecution to come And the weird stuff, the cool stuff from chapter 4 all the way through the end of the book, that's simply meant to encourage these beleaguered churches with the good news that God is in control and that he hasn't forgotten them and that he will return for them. And that's the significance of the book to us. Uh, we are 2,000 years Uh, Removed from the time this book was written But the issues faced by these ancient churches Continue to plague the churches in the world today Sexual misconduct, doctrinal confusion, worldliness, opposition Just to name a few But rest assured though the cultural conditions that we face in our country today pale in comparison to the conditions that these churches faced during that time. But the calls for um, churches to repent and persevere as the sun rises on a post-Christian world are as relevant for today for the church in America or Blue Valley, as they were 2,000 years ago for a church that was really uh, in a world that was pre-Christian. And that's certainly the case with the first church, the church at Ephesus. Now, understand that you could just as well change the name of the church of Ephesus to Blue Valley Baptist Church. So if you would, if you haven't already, uh, Get your copy of God's word and turn to Revelation 2 And while you do look for that Uh, I want you to know that Ephesus Was a city that was on the coast of the Aegean Sea And and it's what is today known as modern Turkey It was prominent in the Roman times Because uh, they were known primarily for this temple The temple to the goddess Artemis which was one of the seven wonders of the, um, of the ancient world. And at that time, it was home to the most prominent church in the region. And it's speculated that John even wrote the Gospel of John while he was in living in that city. And to this prominent church, Jesus, through John, says these words. And if you wouldn't mind standing for the reading of God's word, that would be awesome. I'll start uh, with verse 1 of chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in the right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not... I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This, Yet this you have you hate the works of the Nicolaitans which I also hate. He who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Thanks, you may be seated. The seven letters uh, tend to follow a specific pattern or rhythm uh, that we're gonna become familiar with over the next several weeks as uh, we walk through the book of Revelation. Uh, There's an introduction where Jesus characterizes himself In the way that speaks to each church's unique uh, situation. Followed by a commendation for what um, the church is doing really well. And then a rebuke for what the church is failing to do. And then a warning, typically, and a promise. Although not every church that we're going to read... Through over the next few weeks uh, Not every church gets all of those elements But the church of Ephesus does get them um, However, in order to I think fully understand uh, What they're being told Let's start with their warning first Which is given in verse 4 Look at that again It says But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, <clears throat> if you're comfortable doing so, underlining the word "abandoned" or "left" would be good, uh, depending on your translation. This is an instance where seeing both English renderings of John's word usage here uh, helps our understanding a bit. When what John is getting at is like the idea of you've divorced your first love. You've forsaken uh, your covenant obligation. Uh, You've not kept your promise or you're not doing what you're committed to do. So what does Jesus mean when he says this? You've abandoned the love you had at first. Well, possibly he's saying you've, Abandoned your love for me. And I'm guessing that probably all of us have through the years heard sermons on that particular verse and, um, and have heard from this passage taken in that direction. Uh, and I've even preached it that way. But is that really what Jesus is saying? Is he saying that you've drifted From your love for me? Let's look at the passage and try to get some clues. Go back to verse 2 and 3. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently, and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Honestly, when you look at that, there is nothing in those verses that would lead a person to conclude that these people had grown cold of their love for Jesus. In fact, just the opposite seems to be the case. Jesus commends them in verse 2, for their energy in doing what's right and their courage in standing true for what's right. And then also in verse 3, uh, he, he says that they've done all of this and they've endured for the sake of the name of Jesus. Now that doesn't sound like words uh, Jesus would be speaking to them if they're loved. For him had grown cold. So it must be something else. And the clue as to what that something else is, uh, it comes by remembering the one to whom Jesus is giving this message, the Apostle John. I would contend that all of the teaching that John had heard from the lips of Jesus, uh, teaching that impacted him most, was what he heard from Jesus the night before his crucifixion. Uh, listen to what he says in John chapter 15, verse 12. He says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, the reason I say that impacted him Moses because John repeats this command uh, in some form or another. Over and over again in First John And about a quarter of the book Is devoted to the idea of loving one another But it's in chapter 4 of First John That he explains this command from Jesus most fully uh, Hold your spot in Revelation 2 And just drop back a little bit to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. You see, Jesus, who made John and, and inspired him to write, First John would have known exactly how the word of love would have been spoken and filtered in through John's ears and filtered through his his mind as he wrote in Revelation two. He knew that when he spoke the word to the Ephesians by saying, "You have abandoned the love you had at first, that John would have heard it to say, you have abandoned the love that you had once had for one another. And that the people in uh, Ephesus taught by John would have heard this the same way. So there's a sense that that I think Jesus was saying, you don't love me like you used to, but it also... Uh, is their love for each other having grown cold which which both Jesus in the gospel of John and in John in 1 John say go together it's an it's a both and you can't have one without the other in reality love for Jesus doesn't exist if you don't love his other children Listen again, love for Jesus doesn't exist without loving his other children. So what Jesus had against this church was that they no longer loved each other like they once did. Which leads me to the first thing that we have to consider. If you're a note taker, this would be when you would probably want to fill in a blank or two. And, um, and I would say that uh, we need to consider in our lives and in our church life today that unholy zeal devastates love for each other. Unholy zeal um, devastates love for each other. Ephesus was really the kind of church I think a lot of us Uh, would probably have likely been drawn to, not because of its prominence within um, the Christian world at that time, but because uh, of, of its stances. Ephesus was a foul and depraved and debaucherous city, and the teachings of Christ would have stood out like a blinding light in the darkness. And the church at Ephesus was fully on board with that mission. You see, they took seriously their commitment to guard themselves as uh, individual followers of Jesus. They took seriously their commitment to guard the moral and spiritual integrity of the church. And they took seriously the commitment to Guard the teachings of Christ and the doctrine of the church. Now, all that sounds really good. In fact, it not only sounds worth imitating, it is worth imitating. Every single one of these commitments must be present in an effective church, especially one in a post-Christian world like we live in today. We must guard our lives and personal witness. We must guard the corporate witness of the church and we must zealously guard the teaching of the church. But we need to be really careful when we're doing all of this guarding that we're doing because if we aren't careful, we turn inwards so much under the guise of guarding the flock that we miss out on the ultimate mission that God has for us. Uh, How many of you have read Max Lucado's book In the Eye of the Storm? Have any of you heard of that book? It's a great book, easy to read. But in that book, Max Lucado tells a story, and I'm not going to tell it near like what he does because it takes a long time, but Reader's Digest condensed version was that every uh, spring break, Max Lucado and his dad would get their camper, drive out to the lake, and camp for the week and fish and have a good time. And this particular spring break, his dad said, why don't you invite your best friend? He can come too. So he did. And uh, they get there, uh, set up their, their campsite with uh, getting everything hooked up for the camper and, and all that and the boat in the water and fishing rods and reels ready to go. And they go in, have a nice dinner, sleep. They wake up while they had been asleep a nor'easterner blew in, the lake is just tumultuous, uh, it's, it's freezing cold, and it's drizzly and rainy, and so they said, okay, we brought Monopoly. I mean, we'll set, in the, we'll set in the camper, we'll do Monopoly and play some games, and they did that for the first day, and everything was fine. And they thought, you know, tomorrow's gonna be good, It'll all go away, and we can get out on the lake. The next day, still the same. So they thought, well, we play another deal of Monopoly and tell some stories and all that. But they got started, and as the day went on, um, they're starting to pick little things out about each other that really starting to get on my nerves. You know, uh, by the way, Dad's breakfast wasn't; those eggs weren't cooked the way you always do, you know, and they're starting to get on each other's nerves. And so the next day, they're just really not liking each other. And so the dad starts loading everything up, and he says, grab all your stuff. We're going home. And the moral of the story, basically, is that when those who are called to fish don't fish, they fight. You know, think about that a little bit. You know, uh, we've had our own nor'easterner, if you will, over the last several months, several of them, by the way, over the top of each other, when you think about it. when it, You've heard the saying, when it rains, it pours. Well, it has, we started off with a COVID a stay-at-home order and um, all that goes with that and then you throw in the the uh, race issues and things that are going on in cities and all the negative news and connotations that go with that and then you throw in the fact that it's a um an election year and all that goes with that and 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 the reality of it is we've been, we've been um, quarantined. We've been stuck in our homes. And the isolation that is there is affecting everybody. We're not able to go out or we choose not to do certain things. And when you think about that statement, when those who are called to fish don't fish, they fight. Pick a subject, especially during the COVID situation and this current political climate, the election cycle. Masks: mask, do we wear them or do we not? Uh, Social distancing, do we social distance or do we not? Do we comply the best we know how with government rules and regulations or do we not? Race, relations, man. Do we address it in the church or do we not? You're not a Christian if you vote this way. Or you're not a Christian if you vote this way. You know, opinions are like belly buttons. Everybody's got one. Uh, it's insane. It's it's ungodly and it has destroyed love. The church is destroying itself from the inside out. Satan's not having to do it. We're doing it to ourselves. What is what did Christ tell the church in Ephesus he would do if they didn't return the, to the love they had for one another at first. He told them that he would remove their lampstand, that he would take away their light into the world. And so God forbid that Jesus would look at us at all of the anger and hatred that's in the church global and the church local, and decide that we aren't worth the trouble anymore. And he moves on. The church, that's you and me, we are going to be held accountable for whether or not we love each other. So unholy zeal, zeal that forgets it exists, For God's glory and God's people devastates love for each other and it destroys the church. Secondly, if you're taking notes, an unholy zeal devastates love for the mission. There is an aspect of verse 4 that lends itself to, to understanding that that um, part of what Christ is rebuking here is a loss for zeal of sharing uh, the gospel and making disciples among all the nations. It has to do with how Christ portrays himself among the lampstands and how this indicates a failure to, um, uh, to their first love that would result in the removal of their lampstand. He doesn't portray himself in this way to the other churches. The emphasis is on light, giving light to a dark world through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus. And because this candlestick, um, the church, at Ephesus refused to shine. Jesus was threatened, threatening to take it away. You can't catch a glimpse in all of this of what Jesus uh, says in his only extended um, teaching on the end times. And that's in something called the Olivet Discourse, which in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says... This about the conditions existing in the church at that time, verses 12 uh, through 14 says, And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. Did you catch that? The connection to love growing cold and its effect on the gospel proclamation. Jesus is saying that love that is kindled hot for him will naturally uh, result in the proclamation of the gospel. And love that has gone cold Will or not. Um, in 33 years of ministry, uh, one of the things that I've found out about people is that the people who tend to be the most ardent, doctrinal, and ethical police are the least likely to share Jesus with anyone. They're quick to offer a commentary though on anyone who they feel uh, may be compromised either ethically or theologically, never in person, uh, never in person, because you see that's not their their MO, it's not their way. But they have lost neighbors, they have lost family members, they have lost co-workers who have never heard the gospel from them. They feel strong. They feel zealous even. But rarely, really, they are cold and and useless to the gospel mission. So what do we do with all this? I think we need to realize that a zealous church runs the risk of being an unloving church that a zealous Christian runs the risk of being an unloving Christian. And please, please, please hear this. If love for brothers and sisters is absent, regardless of their individual political, social, and COVID opinions, scripture says that our love that scripture says that our true love for Jesus is in doubt. And so if we are committed Christians, but we aren't proclaiming the truth that Jesus saves, then we have failed. So test your love. How, How gossipy are you when you see someone sinning Are you going to them in person in love, concerned about their spiritual well-being? Or are you making them the subject of email threads and text threads or hallway or parking lot conversations? Test your love. How missional are you? When's the last time that you intentionally cultivated a relationship and presented the good news of the ultimate relationship, and that is the relationship with Jesus Christ? Test your love. And if you've left the love that you had at first, repent. And if you've damaged or destroyed friendships, or relationships because someone didn't think like you or they don't vote like you or they have other opinions that you don't agree with then repent and go to that person and ask forgiveness remember the grace and mercy and the forgiveness Christ has shown you I've often thought I want to I want to show and pass out grace and mercy and forgiveness like a little kid spreads peanut butter. They get it all over the place. They get it all over the place. So remember grace and mercy and the forgiveness that we all have through Christ. So as scripture says in this passage for today, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray.